Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three of the Just and the Suffering podcast. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I've got a good show for you today. We'll begin today's opening tip with some talk about the LeBron James news. King James has taken his talents out west, signing a four-year, $154 million contract with the Lakers. We're going to talk LeBron in our opening tip, and also bring up a little tennis. I'm actually a huge tennis guy, and Wimbledon has kicked off today, so I'll give you some thoughts on that. Later on in this program, we'll recap the Yankees-Red Sox series over the weekend with a very novel Yankee fan I've known for a long time. He's got some interesting stuff to say. I also have an intriguing what-if game to play in today's two-minute drill. But first, we're going to our opening tip, which starts right after this. Y'all ready for this? All right, and we're back with today's opening tip. The big news of the day is that LeBron James has a new home. After spending the last four years with the Cleveland Cavaliers going to four straight NBA Finals, LeBron's decided to go out west, join the LA Lakers on a four-year contract worth $154 million. This is a big decision for LeBron, his first long-term deal since rejoining the Cavaliers. Back with Cleveland, LeBron's been taking just one- and two-year contracts, basically playing year by year to see what he wants to do. Now he is locked in, made a decision about where he wants to go, and decided, I'm going to set up shop in Hollywood for the next four years. Now, anytime a big-time player like LeBron moves in the NBA, it changes the entire outlook of the league. LeBron going to the Western Conference with the Lakers creates a super conference out there. You have the Golden State Warriors, the two-time defending champions, won three and four years with their super team. You have the Houston Rockets with James Harden and Chris Paul, who nearly got past the Warriors and got to the NBA Finals this year. You have LeBron and the Lakers, who are poised to bring in more big talent behind him. You also you have teams like the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Utah Jazz, who could make a big push down the line. Now, at first glance, this is, in terms of basketball, this is not a great decision for LeBron. If LeBron's sole focus was winning the most championships possible, going to the West is not the way to do it. You do not want to set yourself up where you have to go through Golden, Golden State, Houston, Oklahoma City, Utah, some combination of all those teams just to get to the finals. LeBron has been to the finals in eight straight years, and it's safe to say he's not going to get to a ninth. Now, in terms of... Now, this is not to say that his basketball interests can't be met here. The Lakers have a lot of young talent. They have a lot of cap space. They have a lot of assets. They'll be able to get players around LeBron. Even though Paul George stayed in Oklahoma City, even though Chris Paul decided to stay in Houston, there are ways to get talent around LeBron. Kawhi Leonard wants to get there, whether it's through a trade or signing their free agency next year. There are going to be a bunch of big free agents next year, like Klay Thompson, Kawhi, Kemba Walker, Kyrie Irving, you name it. There are a lot of ways for this team to improve. Another thing to remember with LeBron is that LeBron has a bigger design in mind than just winning the six championships. Everybody has said, oh, LeBron needs to get the six in order to tie Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. There's a lot more to LeBron's life than just winning the six championships. He's already lost a bunch of NBA finals, so there will always be the Jordan apologists say, Jordan went six for six. LeBron doesn't matter. What LeBron has by going to Los Angeles is that he's looking to build his image beyond just basketball. LeBron has a production company out in L.A. They produced a TV show for NBC already. He's already been in a movie. He's got his eyes thinking long-term. He's thinking about how to become a big star beyond just the world of basketball. You can't do that in Philadelphia. You can't do that in Cleveland. You do that in Los Angeles. That's why LeBron is in L.A. Now, this isn't to say that he's sacrificing his chance to win by going to L.A. He will have plenty of talent around him. May not be this year. Probably will be next year. The point is, 
LeBron going to L.A. is about his legacy. He thinks that the best move for his legacy on and off the court is to play in Los Angeles. And he's not wrong. A lot of big stars have gone to L.A. to end their careers. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar finished his career in L.A., won some championships. Wilt Chamberlain finished his career in L.A., won some championships. Shaq went to L.A. as a free agent, won three championships. LeBron now is expected to win a title in L.A. If he doesn't, it will be a big black mark on his resume. Can you imagine going to L.A. and not winning a championship? Like Wilt did, like Kareem did, like Shaq did, like Magic and Kobe did. If he fails to win a championship in L.A., LeBron is going to have that glory over him by every pro-Jordan defender in the pl- on the planet. But if anyone is up to that standard, it's LeBron James. I'm not worried about LeBron. He will probably find a way to win the title in L.A. If he doesn't win four, if he doesn't win six, if he doesn't match Jordan's record, he still is one of the best players ever to play the game. All right, moving on to some tennis talk. Wimbledon starts today. In case people didn't know, I am a huge tennis fan. Ever since I was in, I was since I was in middle school. When I get out of summer break, I would be looking for sports first thing in the morning. And ESPN would have the Wimbledon on first thing at 7 a.m. Have matches on. I didn't really understand as a kid, and I started watching. I'm like, wow, these athletes are really good. They play hard. They put their heart into it. There's something about the majesty and tradition of Wimbledon with the all white, all white outfits, the the royalty being in the box. The grace of the sport, all of its appeal to me. This year's tournament is actually a very interesting one. On the men's side, it comes down to really two names Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal. Roger Federer has won this tournament nine times. Last year he was the first time in several years he won. He made a strategic decision to skip the clay court season and play only Wimbledon. That was a bold choice, but at 37 years old, his body can't afford to take the pounding that Clay gives him anymore. Federer has always been better at grass, and by saving all that mileage on his legs, he's able to come into the tournament refreshed and won easily. His biggest challenger figures to be Rafa Nadal, who has looked incredible this year, won the French Open easily, and it's important to remember, Nadal is actually pretty good on grass. Granted, he hasn't been past the quarterfinals since 2011, but a lot of that is injury-related. People forget that 10 years ago, Roger and Rafa played one of the greatest matches in history at the Wimbledon final. It was an epic back and forth, nine hour battle with some rain delays thrown in that Roger ended up that Roger ended up losing to Nadal. It will be interesting to see if Rafa can find it in him to get back there and create another epic match with Roger. Now there are some wild cards on the men's side. Unfortunately, Andy Murray had to withdraw from the tournament because of his hip injury. He didn't have enough time to get back into match shape. Novak Djokovic is always a threat because he's won this tournament three times and he's slowly getting back at the form after elbow surgery. But at this point, it's Roger and Rafa. If the final is not between those two, it will be an upset. On the women's side, the tournament is really wide open. Defending champ Garbine Muguruza looked very strong last year. There's no reason she can't win it again. Simona Halep, who was widely considered the best women's player not to win a slam, finally broke through at Roland Garros and looking to carry the momentum forward to Wimbledon. You always have strong players like Maria Sharapova and Caroline Wozniacki capable of breaking through. Madison Keys, young, a young American whose game is best suited for grass, has not won on Wimbledon yet, but will eventually. But the main story here is Serena Williams. Serena is making her Wimbledon return after sitting out last year during her pregnancy. Now, 
she is ranked only 181st in the world, but Wimbledon has seeded her 25th, which makes sense because she won the two tournaments, the last two Wimbledon she was in, very easily. Now, everybody knows that Serena is a very scary player, and when she's on her game, she could win. She came back at the French Open unseated and got got to the forefront and was well on her way to winning before a pectoral muscle sidelined her and forced her to withdraw. Now, if Serena finds a way to get it done at Wimbledon this year, she will win her 24th Grand Slam, tiring Margaret Court for the most all-time. Her French Open performance showed that she is very close to being ready, and I think that this is the year she gets, she gets there. Wimbledon is very wide open. Anyone can win it, but it's hard to bet against Serena if she's healthy. So I'm going to take Serena Williams to win for the women. I'll take Roger Federer to win for the men. Coming up next, a little baseball talk, so stay with us. All right, and we're back. You know, with the big Yankees-Red Sox series this weekend, I figure I have to get a Yankee guy on the show. My next guest is one of the most passionate Yankee fans I know. He's been a big supporter of the podcast who's wanted to come on since I dropped the first episode. So I decide now is the perfect time to bring on my old friend, Phil Freyetta. Phil, how are you doing today? Doing good, Mike. How are you? Doing good, man. It's been a long time coming. I mean, since high school, we always joke about doing the Phil and Phillips show. So now it's actually happening in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of kind of surreal, but I'm ready to go. All right. Now this this series of the Yankees and the Red Sox didn't go anybody expected it to go. I mean, you had three blowouts. You had the Eduardo Rodriguez getting lit up on Friday night. Sonny Gray gets killed yesterday. I mean, on Saturday, and then David Price is his usual David Price because the Yankees. So, what's your big takeaway from the series this weekend? Well, you know, I've I've always said and uh, stick with it that in regular season baseball, the goal is to win the series, and and the Yankees won the series, so you got to be happy with that. Okay. But uh, that said, I, I came away. I'm concerned about Sonny Gray. I'm really concerned about Sonny. Really, why is that? Well, you, you know, he's he's struggling out there uh, in big games against good teams, and especially at home and. You just you can't rely on that guy. You can't rely on someone like that in a playoff situation. Yeah, especially right now when you look at the rotation. I mean, Tanaka is hurt. We know he's coming back, but at the moment the back the back three of the rotation is Sonny Gray, Domingo Herman, and Jonathan Loisiga. That has to be some level of concern. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And Herman uh, and Loisiga, you got to assume that both of those guys are on uh, innings limits. They didn't throw a lot of innings last year in the minor leagues, so. Come playoff time, they're not there for you, and uh, it's really going to come down to Severino, Tanaka, and Sabathia. Sonny Gray is—he's a non-option for you right now. Okay. Now we all know that the Yankees are going to get some bite of the trade deadline. They're going to get some kind of pitcher. Like, what kind of upgrade do you want them to try and get? And like, who do you think they actually will get? So you know, I hear a lot of fans talking about the fantasy land of Degrom or uh, Bumgarner. I don't think that's a realistic alternative. Obviously, if you can get those guys, you go out and get them. But I don't think that's going to happen. So looking at the guys who I think we could get, uh, I would say J.A. Happ is a, would be a top pros, uh, target for me. Happ is a, you know, he's a reliable left-handed pitcher who's going to go out there and give me six solid innings every time I give him the ball. That's what I need. Yeah, he won 20 uh, games so. a couple of years ago, too. Yeah, so I think Hap would be my top target. There's a rumor that Tampa would be willing to trade Blake Snell. If that's true, I'd be all in on that. I think Snell is a good young pitcher, again, a lefty. And, uh, you know, in Yankee Stadium, it's always good to have a lefty out there. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm glad, glad you brought both those guys. They're both in the division. You don't think Toronto and Tampa Bay would try and make you guys pay a little extra to get a uh, start off their team? No, I, I definitely do. But I think that if you look at this Yankees team right now, this team's ready to win the World Series this year. So I, uh, I'm willing to pay a bit of a premium if it's going to get me that much more of a shot to get it done. And more importantly, one of those guys can get you into the ALE's championship and out of the wild card game. I think that's ideal. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but you know that the way this playoff system works, uh, you're going to have a situation where you have two teams that probably win over 100 games, and one of them's going to be playing a do-or-die game yeah, against he- a team like Seattle, who's no pushover. Yeah, I mean, you, even if you get the game at home, you don't want the idea of having to stare down like James Paxton in a one-game playoff and hoping you hit him that day. But definitely not, or maybe Severino doesn't have it, like last year. Now, the Yankees got away with it last year, but Severino didn't have it with that, on that day. Yeah, the one-game situation is very scary, but I love it because it actually makes winning the division important again. Because remember back in 05 when the Yankees and Red Sox were on that slow-speed chase down the stretch because neither one of them cared who won the division, who won the wild card. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, there was a season i think it was 2010 or 11 where the yankees basically conceded the division to tampa bay to rest up some of their veteran players and i think that's really what uh, got major league baseball to make the change okay and before we move on from the series i don't know why david price is so bad against the yankees his career against them he's 15 and 13 with a 4.90 era and 40 starts do you have any idea why having watched a lot of these games what's the difference with him pitching against them versus say like Toronto or Seattle? So uh, I've thought about this a lot before coming on today, and here's here's what I could come up with. Uh, if you look at Price's breakdown, he's actually been significantly worse against the Yankees since about 2016 when he came to the Red Sox. When he was with Toronto and Tampa, he was up and down, but he, he's just been terrible since he came to the Red Sox. And I really think the reason why is the Yankees – since around that time, have made a conscious effort to load themselves up with right-handed power. And I think Price is just vulnerable to a right-handed power lineup. Yeah, he did get up five home runs last night, too. I think, what, were all of them from right-handed hitters? Uh, yeah, all of them are from righties because Hicks is the switch hitter batting yeah. from the right. Okay, so move on to another topic of mine that I love, which is Giancarlo Stanton, because Stan's had a good year this year. He's batting like 266, 19 homers, 46 RBIs. He's on pace for a typical like John Carlo year. He's going to give you 40 and 100. But they get the sense constantly that Yankee fans either don't like him or not a huge fan of him. And I don't know why. He's just not being accepted. A, do you feel that way? And B, why do you think it is that Yankee fans just can't accept Stanton as one of their own? So I don't feel that way. But uh, I think I can understand why. And you know, it's it's tough for Stanton because he's coming in here where he's the guy with the big contract. Everybody else on this team is homegrown. He's the outsider. And, you know, the guy hit 59 home runs last year. When when you get a guy with 59 home runs, the fans expect him to hit a home run every time he comes to the plate. And that's just unrealistic. Uh, if you look at his numbers, yeah, he started off slow. He's been good and going lady. He's been getting some big hits. And uh, I think as the season goes on in the second half, the more big hits he gets, the more he's going to be accepted. But you know as well as anybody, with the Yankees, it's all about the postseason. If Stanton performs in the postseason, he's going to be loved. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, get, he can get to the point that Miguel Andujar and Gleyber Torres are right now, which they've been loved just for what they've done the regular season. It's amazing because, remember, we were talking in the preseason when they got Brandon Drury and Neil Walker, how those were good moves to hold the fort. But about three weeks in, they're both gone, and Andujar and Torres have taken over. How 
how weird has that been just knowing that they've taken over and just completely changed the direction of the lineup yeah it's you know what it's uh it's it's good fortune for the yankees and i'll say that as a baseball fan who's been watching this game for over 20 years glaber torres is one of the best players i've ever seen come up from the minor leagues at this age the guy reminds me of a young manny machado he is his defense is flawless. His approach at the plate is excellent. And I'll tell you right now, if there's anybody in that lineup I want up in a big spot, I think it's Glaber Torres. Really? You would have – because I remember France, Frances, Mike Frances talked about this with Bill Simmons the other day. He picked Torres as well. You'd take him over a guy like Andahar or Aaron Judge or even Stanton? Yeah, uh, I think I would uh, because, you know, Judge and Stanton, they're great and all, and I'm not taking anything away from them, but you can pitch to those guys. They're, they have vulnerabilities. Glaber Torres – that guy just uses the whole field. He seems to come up clutch, and he, he gives you a professional at bat every time. I know he's not going to get himself out. He's going to make the pitcher get him out, and he's, uh, he's really impressed me so far. It's amazing they got him for a half a season for all this Chapman. Yeah, that, that was a perfect storm. Uh, I don't think there's any other team in baseball who would have made that trade, but you can understand why the Cubbies did that given – how many years it was since they had won a World Series. Well, I mean, when you've gone over a century without winning a title, I think you can be forgiven for giving away a future All-Star. Yeah, yeah. if you're Theo Epstein, you have no choice there. You bring in a title to Chicago makes you an immortal. Yeah, now they built they built the statue, and they won't care that Glaber's going to probably have a 15-year career where he goes off and be, goes to the All-Star game 12 times and wins an MVP along the way. No, no. I mean, it's one of those situations where you have a trade that worked out for both teams. Oh yeah, that's something that I. Before we go, before we go, I wanted to get your quick thoughts on what's going on with my baseball team, the miserable Mets. Any general opinion on that? So uh, I gotta say, I'm I'm really surprised at what's going on with the Mets. Uh, when they started off early this year, I thought the Mets were a quality team, and I know they've been hit with the injury bug, but that team is. It's starting to remind me. You know, I'm a big Giants guy. To me, Mickey Callaway's looking like Ben McAdoo 2.0. His uh, his press conferences are weak. He's not he's not instilling what I expect to see from a manager here. Uh, I see comments from him about how we're playing the game the right way, or it's not about wins and losses, and that that's not going to fly in this town. No, I feel like he's a guy who, knowing the Mets, look, they'll fire him and he'll go somewhere else and he'll be like really good. But like this is kind of like an Art Howe situation where Art Howe was amazing in Oakland, and then he comes over to the Mets and he's lousy for a year and a half before he gets like, oh. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of similar to Art Howe, too. I could see that. Your team has a, a big problem, Mets do, because they have a veteran team. They don't really have much in the farm, and that's that's on Sandy. Sandy's really let that farm uh, let that farm system go, and it's it's a tough call as far as if you trade Jake and Noah or not. Uh, you do need to restock the farm. I just I don't see any way for the Mets to turn this around in the foreseeable future. Well, there's certainly interesting times ahead. Well, Phil, I know you got to run. Thanks for taking the time today. Come on. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, thanks for having me on. And before I go, I don't want to give the Red Sox too much advice, but I would say find a reason for David Price to not pitch against the Yankees. Carpal tunnel or whatever excuse but, they need to come up with. Yeah, let him have a, a fortnight all night or that way he's too tired to actually pitch in the game. Yeah, I think that's right. Stay tuned for today's two-minute drill, which is coming up right after this. All right, and we're back with today's two-minute drill. Now, I'm not usually one to play the what-if game, 
but I drew some inspiration after hearing more trade rumors for Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard. Everyone isn't talking about how the Mets need to trade one of these guys to improve the farm system and get young position players on the roster. The last time that anyone was talking about the Mets trading one of their young starters for a young position player was back after the 2015 season. The Mets were fresh off the World Series appearance. Yoenis Sess was going to be a free agent. Daniel Murphy was a free agent, had no chance, and the Mets had no interest in bringing him back. So remember, the Mets' plan offseason was to bring in Ben Zobrist. That didn't work. So they ended up trading away John Neese for Neil Walker. Their plan for the outfield was hey, we're going to sign Alejandro de Aza and platoon him with Juan Magaris. Now, that plan was not great. So there was a lot of speculation hey, the Mets have these five young, controllable starting pitchers in their prime. This group would be worth a billion dollars collectively to hit free agency. Since you have a surplus, why not trade one of them? That way you can get a young position player in an area of need. The most popular guy to get shopped in these rovers is Matt Harvey because he was coming off a big season, three years away from free agency, and it's Scott Boris's agent, so there was no chance that the Mets would bring him back long-term. The most popular team connected to him was the Red Sox, who needed pitching badly at that time. And one of the names people brought up a lot in those rumored deals is Mookie Betts. Now there's been nothing suggests that these teams ever came close to the deal. Let's play this out for a second. In, 20, in 2015... This bet's his second full year in the major leagues. He's hitting two, he hit 291 with 18 homers, 77 RBIs, and 21 stolen bases. Harvey's coming off a renaissance year, which is months removed from having the whole stadium chanting his name. He took the mound in the ninth for game five. Now we'll advance to 2016. Harvey falls off the cliff in Boston instead of New York. The Mets are avoided that mess the next three years, and Mookie Betts turned to a superstar, which is something the franchise has not developed on its own for a very long time. The best decision also the second impact because the Mets likely do not bring back Ioannis Cespedes, even if he's sitting out there late in February without a contract. The Cespedes deal got them a wild card game in 2016, but since then, he's played in less than half of the team's games since signing his four-year, $110 million contract. Imagine a world where Sandy Alton actually had the guts to trade off Matt Harvey and let Ioannis Cespedes walk after the World Series, and the Mets had Mookie Betts instead. Alderson likely has a statue being built for him because the Mets have a young, talented center field who's the anchor of their line for the next decade. The Mets also have money to spend on a veteran starting pitcher to support the youngsters and money to sign the guys they have as long-term contracts. Now, as 2016 probably goes differently, they might not make the playoffs, but imagine a world where the Mets are actually set up for seven, eight years to win instead of having a wildcard game, a couple losing seasons, and this idea that many more are ahead of them. It's funny how the what-if game works. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Phil Freyetta, for coming on to talk Yankees baseball. If you want more great content like this podcast, be sure to check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-331. Feel free to tweet me with hashtag Phil and Phillips show if you made it to the end of this podcast. Be sure to stay locked in next week because I have a great guest coming on, Joe D'Aloisio soccer enthusiast and creator of the Extra Time blog, will be joining me to talk all things World Cup with the tournament heating up as we advance through the knockout stage. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Islanders fans. (laughs) 